Well, I don't know how many of you went out this week to the CNE. It's one of those things that, you know, every fall, if you live in the GTA, you, you want to go there. I remember going the first time. It was about grade 11. I lived in Huntsville. But this was the big trip of the year for grade 11s. We went down, we had supper at the old organ grinder, and we went out to the CNE. I, I remember going on some of the rides, looking around, and, and trying as much as I could. Now, it's not like Canada's Wonderland, right? <laughs> These aren't big roller coasters. The, CNI, the CNE's rides are, are kind of um, amateurish, sketchy at times. You can hear them rattling as, as you're on them. But the reality is that these are small midway rides, right? They, they put them up and they take them down in a matter of a day. They're supposed to be mobile, so they're not designed to be those big, scary, ferocious, terrifying, big fixed roller coasters, big rides. I remember going on one in particular and thinking, eh, a little sketchy. And then the next one. <laughs> I, I thought they were all kiddie rides. I got off of this one. I was scared. <laughs> I, I hated it so much. You ever heard of the pirate ship? It goes back and forth. Kind of innocuous, isn't it? You look at it, you think, eh. But I'll tell you, it, it only took a couple minutes, and it made me sick to my stomach. It, it made me so sick that years later, just before the pandemic hit, I went back down to the CNE with some friends, and I, I saw that ship, and, and my stomach just tightened up thinking about it. And I don't know what it is about that ship, just going back and forth and the rocking, uh, it, it was just way too much. And it really brings us to this text this morning. I can't imagine how Paul must have felt. It, this was supposed to be a leisurely cruise across the Mediterranean to Rome, something that shouldn't have been very difficult at all, and yet it turned into a total nightmare, a perfect storm, the hurricane force winds that came out of nowhere. I, I couldn't handle five minutes on, on this pirate ship. I don't know what I would have done for 14 plus days with Paul on this ship. R relentless waves, wind, lightning, rain, no stars at night, no sun during the day. <laughs> I would have just been lost. They were at the mercy of the storm. There was no way of knowing where they were. And I can imagine Paul, after 14 days, he's thinking, there's one thing I, I need to ask, Lord. You, you said I'm supposed to be going to Rome. You've promised that a couple years before. But is this going to be the end of it? We know in the Old Testament that God often makes promises, but those promises, while they, they may be far away, we don't know how that is going to be, how God is going to fulfill those things. Maybe God was going to take Paul's body lifeless to Rome, and there was to be a service. I, I don't know. But the reality is, as we hear God's word, we, we must remember that God has the sovereign authority to fulfill that, however he desires. Now, the storm itself in the narrative or the plot of the whole book of Acts is important because it comes really at the end of the book, right? It is probably the greatest single challenge so far in the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. Because the gospel, it, it, it came, the Holy Spirit came at Jerusalem, 
And since then, the Holy Spirit has been moving out, expanding the kingdom of God as the early church is faithful in its teaching and preaching of the gospel. It's against the backdrop of, of the growing intensity of the persecution. God, time after time after time, has demonstrated His sovereignty over the hearts of men, over the machinations and the designs of, of evil men. As the gospel goes forth to the uttermost ends of the earth, as it's going now forth to Rome, thousands of Gentiles have been added to the family of God. But what's going to happen? As we read this, we're brought into this discussion, is this the end of it? How is God going to change this situation? Well, as Christians, we know that God is sovereign, that God will reign, and as we come to the end, we say, hallelujah, God has proven himself. But then we need to ask ourselves the question, well, how does the storm fit into the overall flow of the narrative? Why is it come at the end of the book of Acts? What is it intended to teach us? Because it is one of the longest single narrative descriptions that we have in the Old Testament. It rivals anything that we read of in ancient cultures of naval travels. What we're going to see this morning is that faith is at the center of who we are. It must lead us forward. Now, last week we saw as Paul stands before Festus the governor and before King Agrippa, we saw that in interpreting the biblical narrative, sometimes we actually have to use the comparison and the contrast of the key characters to figure out what exactly is the spiritual truth that we're to bring out of this. Well, this week we have to take a slightly different tact. Now, if you have your Bibles, you look at them, you'll probably see many of them will have titles. They'll say things like, Paul sets sail for Rome, the storm, the shipwreck. And by the way, all of those subtitles, if you weren't aware, are only man-made divisions. They're not authoritative, right? So it's only the actual words uh, of Scripture that are authoritative. But your Bible probably has some divisions and has it in three categories. But you know what? If we look at the narrative structure, how it is intentionally written, it actually falls out into two categories or two sections. The first one, you want to even take a pencil and, and just say verses 1 through 20. That's the first section. Here, Paul, yes, he's getting on the ship. They're going for a first couple days and everything seems fine. Uh, the first hint that things may not uh, go right, that there's a storm coming, they, it, it happens so they find this safe harbor at Fair Havens. But instead of staying there for the winter, which really wasn't really a good uh, wintering harbor to begin with, they decided to take their chances and go a little farther. And that's when this storm hits. A violent hurricane force that's so fierce that they have to not only throw the rigging overboard, not only do they have to get rid of the, the, the lifeboat that's in tow behind them, but they basically have to throw out all of the wheat, all of, everything that they're carrying, the very reason that would make the, 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 the trip profitable for anybody. It was going to be a total loss. And it ends, I would challenge you, it ends in verse 20 with a sobering statement of despair. That things were so bad, everyone had abandoned hope of being saved, including 
Paul. Now, the second category, the second section, again, take your pencils. It is verses 21 through 44. The storm continues for another 14 days. It rages on and on and on. But during that time, God speaks to Paul directly through an angel. And Paul hears God's word. Not only are you still going to Rome, but take heart. Not a soul is going to lose their life. All 276 of you are going to be safe. And how does this section end? It ends with, yes, the boat cracking up on the reef, but everyone is saved. So what changes the outcome from despair and helplessness to one of thanksgiving and hope? What changes the situation from sure death to the promise of life? Well, the answer is Paul's faith in God. Faith, like Paul's, trusts in God's word and his sovereign providence to save. At different times over the last couple of months, we've seen how the writer, the gospel, uh, 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 the writer of Luke, uh, Luke has brought and, and intentionally portrayed for us that Paul is to be an example of what it means to be faithful in the proclamation of the gospel, what it means to be faithful in the face of persecution and the hatred of the world against the very message that, that we bring that is life. What's on display for us to, this morning to savor is that this is a faith that we are to exemplify. What does faith look like when it comes up against the, the trials and the storms of life? Well, we have the example of Paul in this very situation. So it's a metaphor of the Christian life really on two different levels. First and foremost, every one of us as Christians will face trials such as this in life. We are all going to die one day. We are all going to experience our bodies broken down. We don't know when it'll happen. It's not a question of if, it's when. And how we act, how we live by faith in those circumstances is important. And the second part of that metaphor is that the ongoing advance of the gospel, even as, as Paul is continuing on to Rome, and building the kingdom of God, going beyond that, faith is the necessary aspect that we must have as God's people to be faithful to preach the gospel to all nations. So the key verse around which I think everything revolves here, and I'm going to encourage you, these two sections, one ending in despair, the other ending in hope, is actually verse 25. It says, so take heart, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as it has been told, but we must run aground on some island. Think about it. That was an extraordinary statement, a startling statement. It's startling simply because they have this raging, tor tempestuous, tormentous sea all around them. <clears throat> they are literally helpless. And on top of that, Paul says, you're going to be saved, but the boat must be gone. And they're thinking, well, if the boat's going to go, that means that we're all going to be thrown into the sea and we're going to have to survive till we get to the island. There is a real chance something drastic is going to happen here. 
So this is an extraordinary situation because of the reality that they were already in, but it was also extraordinary because of what was promised was going to happen. It's startling. It's stark. Here they are, locked in a, a fight for their life against the sea at the hands of this tempestuous and raging sea. The waves are almost capsizing them at every turn. There's no stars to guard them at, guide them at night. They have no idea where they are. There's hardly any sun during the day. The, the sky is, is so dark. The rain is beating down continually in sheets. The, the wind is blowing so hard that if you didn't grab onto something, you'd be blown overboards. They hadn't eaten in days. The, the ship itself, you could, you could be on the, the deck of that ship and you could hear the, the ship groaning and cr- uh, cracking under the, the weight of the storm. And Paul says in the midst of all this, take courage. <laughs> take courage. They're in such a desperate situation that they have to get rid of the lifeboat. They're in such a desperate situation that they, they have to get rid of all of the cargo just to keep the boat alive. They're in such a a precarious situation that they literally have to lash the hull together just so that it would stay together. It it was threatening to break apart plank by plank all around them. But Paul's words are based in an immovable faith of God, a faith that looks beyond the, the physical realities that they were experiencing at that very moment, a, a faith that rests not in what they could see, but in what they couldn't, and the promise of God. Now, don't get me wrong, Paul is scared here. After all, he's just a man. How do I know he's scared? The angel, what are the first words to Paul? (laughs) Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Paul. (laughs) So he's quivering too, which is a good example. If if he is to, to be for us a man of great faith and great courage, we know that even he had challenging days. But here's the truth. When Paul hears what God has for him. When, when he hears that not only are you going to Rome, but I'm going to save everyone aboard, he takes heart. He's encouraged that this is not the end, that there's not going to be any great loss of life, and that God would fulfill his purposes. Because he trusts in God's promise and his providential control of all things, Paul's faith is revitalized. It's been flagging at this point. God, where are you in the midst of all this? But God speaking directly to him through the angel. His faith is revitalized and he takes courage. It's here in verses 23 and 25. As he speaks to the crew, as he speaks to those who are on the ship, that we see four truths that we need to contemplate. Four truths that tell us about what our faith is to be like. The first one, when life's storms hit, courageous faith is anchored in God's abiding presence. When life's storms hit, courageous faith is anchored in God's abiding presence. Now, over his Christian life, Paul had had the the extraordinary pleasure of actually experiencing God and Christ in a very real manifestation at least three times before. Back in chapter 9, he's on the the road to Damascus, and what happens? This light, and God speaks to him directly, and Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? 
in uh, chapter 18. He's in Corinth, and there's persecution going all around him. And Christ comes in a dream, and he tells him, don't stop preaching. I've got so many other people in this town, and they will support you. They will help you. Chapter 23, he's in Caesarea, and Jesus actually stands beside Paul and says, be courageous, because what? I'm going to send you to Rome. And now here in chapter 27, Paul is being tossed violently across the deck of of this boat on the sea, and an angel appears to him and tells him that everything is going to be okay. So take heart. So he's had this extraordinary life of, of Christ manifestations to him directly. Now, how can we have a sense of God's abiding presence with us today? We understand that it's not rarely ever this audible voice. It, it comes through a firm yet gentle prompting of the Holy Spirit, of who we are in Christ. An assurance that comes to us as we read the Word of God and the Spirit applies it to us. That, is, that, that prompting of the Spirit it is sovereignly of God, but it is dependent on what we would say are secondary means. And by that I mean that God ties our experience of our intimacy with Him to these things. Not, not that they limit God's sovereignty in, in any way, but that He has chosen to use them as determinative of how we experience, the depth of the experience that we have of this blessing, of His presence. The first one is the intake of God's Word. Now, I, I know that's a challenge for all of us. I, I would doubt that maybe one person this morning would say, I read the Bible every day, morning and night. I, I'd say probably none of us would say, I read too much of the Bible. <laughs> we'll read all kinds of other things, watch TV, but we will be reticent to admit that we don't read enough of the Bible. And it's especially true, I think, of young people. Because here's the reality, if you don't set a pattern in your life early on, uh, that is the time of the Lord, I am going to imbibe the truth. If there's nothing coming in that, that tells us who we are in Christ, that assures us that we are His, then we are going to be severely challenged when trials come. And they will. Now, over the last couple months, there's a lot of news coming out of California, out of the West, in terms of Lake Mead. You've seen all those pictures, right? (laughs) Of how there's almost nothing in this lake anymore. And in fact, there is an aquifer called the Agalala. It is under seven states. It is receding every year as if eight, no, not eight, 18 Colorado rivers were pouring out of this. So there's this great outpour, but there's nothing coming in. It's like like mead. It's going down even farther. The reality, it's not a perfect metaphor, but the reality is, is without the incoming water of the Word of God, your life is like Lake Mead. You, you may go for a while thinking everything is okay, that it's down a little bit, but there is a crisis critical point that's coming, a crisis that will reveal the evil that's been lurking underneath. 
So we have the intake of God's Word. We also have a gentle disposition to the Lord Himself, a heart that is acutely aware of just how much sin continues to remain in us, a heart that is prepared and willing to move from that sin to repentance, a heart that continues to yearn after God and seek Him in ever deeper ways. Again, I think the challenge is for all of us, young or old, maintaining a disciplined life, a life that is in the sweet spot of knowing God, that we are righteous before Him because of the blood of Christ, of knowing that intimacy that our sins have been forgiven, keeping a short account with God. It's really the discipline of watchfulness, looking after your own soul and desiring after God. So that the more we include these things or do these things, the intake of God's Word and the maintenance of a tender heart towards God, and these are the means by which God um, connects or ties the blessing of the presence of His being, um, we will know a deeper experience of the presence of God. The more we will be able to act on that presence. And so if we don't have that regular Bible intake, if we don't have a heart that is receptive and gentle and desires after God, we will find ourselves in a very dire place as soon as trials come. When we are anchored in that deep sense of abiding in Christ, that no matter what else, I am saved, my sins are forgiven, that I know the sweetness of His walking with me on a daily basis, we will be able to display amazing courage in the face of whatever storm may come. Again, whether young or old, those days are coming. We don't know if, as a 20-year-old, your life may be demanded today. Now, I'm not trying to be morbid, but the reality is, is we just don't know. We, we expect and we live on the basis that everyone is going to get to the age of 78, 80, or whatever the life expectancy is, but the reality is that's all up to God, not up to us. So I want to encourage you to, to make sure that these are anchored in your life, the intake of the God's Word and a sweet, receptive spirit to God. The second thing, when life's storms hit, courageous faith is anchored in knowing that God owns us. Go back to verse 23 again. What does it say? For this very night there stood before me an angel of the Lord, of whom or to whom I belong and to whom I worship. Paul, Paul stood on this moving deck against all of the power and the raging sea, but he had an unwavering knowledge that he belonged to God, that God had called him, God had saved him. He was purchased by the blood of Christ. Who he used to be is gone forever, and now he is owned because Christ has paid the ransom for his sinful soul. Now, how do we know if we belong? Well, again, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, but we do have several uh, metaphors or images that are given to us, don't we? The first of all, we, we're told that we are like shepherd and Jesus is our great Sorry, we are like sheep, and Jesus is our, our great shepherd. He knows us. He calls us by name. He guides us, 
He leads us. He protects us. It's an intimate picture, isn't it, of care, of trust, of dependency, of obedience. The second picture is that we are called the children of God. God is our lovingly, uh, loving Heavenly Father. He cares for us. He nurtures us. He matures us. He gives us every good spiritual gift. And the third is that we are now part of the bride of Christ. That wonderful blessing, uh, vision that Paul gets and uh, and shares with us as to the, the love relationship of Jesus and the church is the same with the bride and the bridegroom. So we belong to God because He has purchased us. He has ransomed our soul. He redeemed us from the power of sin, and it cost Him dearly. And and, and we understand afresh how much that cost Him, the death of His own Son, Jesus Christ. Paul understood, he, he kept it close to his heart, that he belonged to God. Not simply that God was creator, but in the truth that God, in His love, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, only to lay it down as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus died for your sins. It's a conviction of God's ownership that allowed Paul to stand there and say, whatever happens, I'm yours. And it's the same conviction that will help us as well. Understanding with all assurity that we have been bought by the blood of Christ. And no matter what happens, how quickly it happens, we are His. But here again, we have another challenge. Because the only way to grow in our experience of of knowing wholly and fully that we are His is if we die to self and we renounce the world. The only way that we can grow in our, our understanding that He has purchased us and no one can take us out of our hand, His hand <coughs> is that we die to self and we renounce the world. That's something not, we don't want to do, is it? Either of us, or either of those things, none of us want to do that. We love where we are. Our experience of this divine truth that we belong to God is tied to our commitment to seek after God. The more we renounce the world, the more we renounce our own sin, the more abiding presence we will experience, the more we will know God's ownership over our life, and the more we will be secure in whatever situation may come our way. Now, young people, uh, I don't want to sound presumptuous, but I've been where you've been. I remember at 20 years old looking at the world and thinking, what a wonderful thing. I'm going to rush at it with all the gusto and all the desire. Look at all the great things it has to offer. And I I feed that excitement. I, I feed whatever pleased me. The problem is that you're setting down patterns in your life that aren't seeking after God. They, they may not in themselves be evil, but you're not learning self-control. And for the rest of us, I think as we get older, we come to realize how complacent we've become, how calloused our heart gets at times. We've come to a certain point in our life, and, and we're just fine, thank you very much. 
We experience God on a on a punctilial basis. Every once in a while, we have this wonderful closeness, but in between time, where we don't feel close, and we become very comfortable with that. And we don't want to give up more. We don't want to die to self and what it really means. And we're quite happy in our own selfish hedonism, continuing to seek after the things of this world. The problem is that if we truly want to know that we are God's, that he owns us. We need to renounce the world and we need to die to self. Faith rests in the grace of God. The third thing, when life's storms hit, courageous faith is anchored in God's call upon us to serve him. Again, verse 23. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the Lord to whom I belong and whom I worship. Paul had courage even in this dire situation because his faith was anchored in the truth that he was doing God's business. God was sending him to Rome. He didn't know what was going on, but God was sending him. He was in God's place. He knew nothing could harm him unless God permitted it. Despite how the storm may rage around him, he was right where God wanted him to be <laughs> at the exact moment God wanted him to be there. Had God wanted that they not get in this ship, that they not be hit by the storm, he would have changed the situation altogether. There are way too many factors that God could have intervened on. The storm could have come a little bit earlier and they would have stayed in Fair Havens. The storm could have stayed a little bit later, you know, not come so quickly, and, and they could have gotten to Rome. All of these things, but it, that's not how it played out. God had a purpose in these things. Now, this doesn't mean that as we grow in, a, in our understanding of a deep assurance that we are right where God wants us to be, that nothing bad is going to happen... We're never promised that, right? And that's not the example of Paul. <laughs> he knows with all assurity that this is the God I worship. This is what God has called me to. And yet I find myself on this sinking ship in the middle of the Adriatic. We're never promised an easy life. But what it does mean is that our conviction of being in God's perfect will will anchor us in the midst of whatever trial comes, in the middle of whatever danger or evil situation that comes our way. God has permitted it, and we're going to get to that in a second. Number four, when life's storms hit, courageous faith is anchored in our trust in God. So these first three points all come out of verse 23. Courage in the face of trials because of God's abiding presence, God's ownership, God's calling or uh, our service to that calling. But now in verse 24 and 25, we see the basis out of which all of this really is uh, based upon. All of this comes out. What does it say? So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. The reason why Paul is displaying so much courage in the face of such a trial is simply because he believed in God. Not only is God all-knowing, knowing the beginning from the end, not only is He the creator of the universe and therefore the master of the seas, not only is He sovereign in salvation, 
And not only is God sovereign in his providential care and control of every aspect of life in the universe, guiding and moving things, but he's sovereignly moving them to his desired purposes and ends. Romans 8, 28, it tells us what? All things work together for our good and his glory. And, and we love that verse and we take it, I think, sometimes a little glibly, taking it on the shin that something bad has happened, so let's just trust God. That's the first good step, but we need to get farther than that. I don't think Paul had the foggiest understanding, the foggiest idea why God was allowing such a horrendous storm to overtake them just as he's on his way to Rome. He's been waiting for two years in prison. He gets out, he stands two more trials, and, and on his way to Rome, now everything looks like it's going to be lost. But he was a man who trusted implicitly that if God has permitted something to happen, if he finds himself in a situation, God has allowed it. And in allowing it, he has a great and wonderful purpose in it even if that purpose is not obvious. We understand, I hope, that God does not work in straight lines like we think, right? He thinks in desired ends or purposes. Now, what is the best way of bringing about His purpose in the long run? We think in straight lines, while His ways are often circuitous before it ever gets to His final purpose. We think in goals and objectives and of getting there as fast as we can, but God is more interested in the process of how we get there. Now, I don't know if you've ever done any sailing. I remember going on a, a small sailboat with friends many, many years ago. And it's not one of those things, or maybe you've seen them on TV, but it's not one of those things that, that you can go uh, down in a race and go around a, a ball at the end and come straight back in a single line. You have to tack back and forth, Right? You have to use the wind to get where you want to be. But you know what? Each tack back and forth is not inconsequential to God. Each of those movements back and forth, He is designed with a purpose. His end, His purpose is to make us into the image of Christ. But how He's going to do that isn't necessarily the slow, inexorable path that we think is straightforward. He's going to bring sharp turns in our life at different points. And each one of those is important in making us more into the image of Christ. They're not inconsequential. They're not useless. And that's what we need to remember. God's ways are far above our ways, aren't they? His wisdom is greater than our wisdom. His purposes are nearly impossible for us to fathom. Why? Why has this happened to us? We've been a loving family. We've committed ourselves to serving in the church, and yet this now is ready to destroy us. Now, we don't know the reasons why God has permitted this terrible storm to happen. We're, we're not told in Scripture. But you know what? As I read these verses and remember that the Apostle Luke is the writer of not only the Gospel of Luke, but the book of Acts, and that they are tied together in one thought process, in one theme. I can't help but remember Luke chapter 8. You remember that? Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee, and out of nowhere a storm arises. It rages so much 
that they wake him and say, Master, Master, we are perishing. And after calming the sea, Jesus says what? Where is your faith? I can't help but think that Luke is connecting Jesus and the calming of the sea and this incident here. That faith is at the center of who we are as we are called to Christ. And as we walk by faith every day, we must trust God implicitly in all things. And at the end of Luke chapter 8, in that little vignette, Jesus calms the sea. And what does he say? Or, sorry, what is the reaction? They were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? that he commands even the winds and the waters to obey him. Here's Paul on his way to Rome. He, he's proclaiming, I'm, I, he is the epitome of an evangelist. I can't imagine that one day didn't go by when he was not trying to do a Bible study or share the gospel with people. And he's proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God has provided an opportunity not to test Paul's faith, but to speak through it and demonstrate that Jesus is indeed Lord of all. Who is this Jesus that Paul is preaching? Even in our darkest hour, he's able to save. Who is this Jesus who knows the final and perfect outcome that we're all going to be saved? Who is this Jesus that we pray to and give thanks to? At the same time, God must have a purpose for Paul. He's learned so much. He stood the ground four times, but now he's going on to Caesar. And somehow this torment is teaching him something personally. It's preparing him in an even greater way to stand before Caesar. Where are you in your walk with the Lord this morning? Are you like Paul and just getting on the boat and everything seems to be rosy, there's a nice light breeze, the sun is out, and life is good. Maybe you are at the point where the, the sea is getting a little choppy. There's a bit of a headwind. It's not easy to go ahead. It's not easy to desire after God. It's not easy to walk in righteousness. You know that more than likely something is looming on the horizon. Or, or maybe you're in the midst of a great trial. When I went to visit my uncle the other day, I said I didn't get a chance really to explicitly share the gospel. And all my thoughts are, Ron, what do you want to do with the rest of your life God has given you? Don't whine or complain. I don't want anyone to see me who I, as I am. The reality, here's a life that it shouldn't have happened in this way. He, he uh, had a stroke on the farm way out in the boonies. Uh, understandable, that can happen. The reality was is that they didn't get him to a hospital in time to give him that uh, little miracle pill that can reverse the, 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 uh, the, the consequences of uh, strokes. On top of that, they decided that for his rehab, they were going to send him to a hospital in Ottawa. But they sent him to the wrong hospital. And then when he gets there, he gets COVID and almost dies. He's there for 21 days trying to recover from COVID. The window that he has for learning how to use his limbs again is gone. 
in our perspective, we would say, why did God do that? We don't know. And I would pray that my Uncle Ron, in, in his last months, would have his heart hardened, or sorry, his heart softened to God, that he would get beyond his own trial and know that God wants him as part of the family. If we have a faith that is fixed on God, believes wholeheartedly, it's his very bone that he is faithful to fulfill his promise. Not only is he faithful, that he is sovereign to fulfill all those promises. Our faith will give us courage to stand against any storm that comes our way. Even more, in the middle of those times of storms, our faith is a shining example to others of Jesus Christ. And in the middle of all of this, Paul says, I urge you, do this. Listen to my words. When we're in these situations and life is real and we are living by faith, our response should be, I urge you to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. My life is an example. It's short. You don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next. But I trust in Jesus. He is sovereign. Our faith amidst these trials is a powerful testimony to all who are around us to trust and follow Jesus. And, And as we go into this world in our workplace, in our restaurants this afternoon, we need to understand that our faith in the midst of trials, we proclaim Jesus Christ. As our bodies wither away, as we deal with irreputable damage to our our, our memories, God is sovereign. We worship, contrary to what the world thinks, we worship and serve a God who is providentially caring and sovereignly in control of every situation. We worship and serve a God who answers prayer, who knows the beginning from the end. We We serve and worship a God who delights to save through miracles. And he does save. So we go out in the midst of these trials and by faith live for the glory of God. Come and see the goodness of the Lord even when life storms come. Our Heavenly Father,